0: From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins.
1: Welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. So glad that you have joined us on the program today. The Supreme Court is now scheduled to hear two challenges to Roe versus Wade in the next six weeks. Are we about to see the end of Roe? In addition. There's evidence that the Loudoun County School Board knew about a sexual assault in the girl's bathroom, but did nothing to change the policy that allowed that boy into the girl's bathroom. Then he did it again. We'll discuss that a little later in the program. At the end of the program, Kamala Harris sent a video to churches in Virginia encouraging them to vote for Terry McAuliffe. Is it a problem, is it ever a problem for churches to endorse candidates or engage in political activity? That's what we're going to discuss in our worldview segment at the end of the program. But first, the headlines. Last night, President Biden held a town hall allegedly to answer questions from the American people. It may not have been a great representation of the public, of the 12 people who were given a chance to ask a question, seven were Democrats. Three were independents and two were Republicans. How did President Biden do? Is everyone feeling better now? Joining me now to discuss this is Congressman Rick Allen of Georgia. Congressman, welcome to Washington Watch.
2: Joseph, good to be with you. Thank you.
1: Well, we are thankful for your time. (laughs) President Biden doesn't take a lot of questions. He's been uh, known for his lack of uh, press conference availability. Uh, what did you think of the conversation he had with the public yesterday?
2: Uh, well, I thought it was typical. Um, it was uh, uh, very protected. Uh, I think Anderson Cooper had to remind him of the other port of entry uh, uh, in California where we're having our, having problems with our uh, supply chain. And um, it's, um, it's obvious that he is, uh, uh, you know, he's not doing press conferences because he's just not, uh, he's just not coherent. And he, he, he can't uh, remember places, names. Uh, you know, I think when he was campaigning, he couldn't remember what state he was in. And he's ignoring all the issues that are uh, creating problems across the country, like the border. Uh, you know, he was asked, you know, uh, should you go to the border? And he said, well, I, I, don't, I don't know. You know, I really haven't had a lot of time. Uh, and, you know, the, the things he's spending his time on are, are, are what I believe are causing most of our problems. And uh, certainly that's the you know, American Rescue Plan that uh, delayed a lot of people going back to work and has created uh, workforce shortages throughout the nation, which is part of the supply chain issue. It's also... Uh, now he's talking about this budget reconciliation, which is the largest uh, expansion of entitlement programs in, in our lifetime.
1: Yeah, Congressman Allen, you referred to his uh, conversation, his short conversation about the border. Uh, for those who did not watch that, we actually have a, a clip of that question. And I want to play that for those who missed his town hall yesterday and then get a chance to respond to that as well. Let's go ahead and play that.
2: Do you, do you have plans to visit the southern border?
1: Uh, I've been there before, and I haven't. I mean, I know it well.
2: I guess I should go down, but the, but, but the whole point of it is, I haven't
1: had a whole hell of a lot of time to get down. Congressman, do you think that's a reflection of the priority or lack of priority he places on the border?
2: I think it's a reflection that uh, uh, that, uh, that basically is response to when asked the question in the primary, every Democratic candidate who is asked. About the border, and all uh, admitted to being open borders, and all admitted to giving uh, illegal immigrants free health care, uh, which is obviously an open invitation to come across that border, uh, because these people have no health care. Uh, there is no medical health care in 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 all of, most all of these countries. So uh, he's ignoring the problem. Uh, he's doing nothing about the problem. Uh, you know, we he's under court order to uh, 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 to sustain the Remain in Mexico policy, he is breaking the law. He's flying people on charter aircraft away from the border and distributing those people throughout the United States. That is against uh, the law. And, uh, you know, it, it's sad. Uh, but, but he's ignoring it. Uh, uh, we've, we've had uh, nearly every member of Congress has been to the border uh, and, you know, I'm not a border state. So uh, but it, it's tragic what's going on. And, and here's the problem. It's not illegal immigration. It is human trafficking and drug trafficking. These cartels are making a fortune. And frankly, uh, you know, uh, they have declared war on America and something needs to be done about it.
1: One of the other issues that President Biden discussed with Anderson Cooper yesterday had to do with vaccinations and the vaccination mandates. And he pointed out the number of first responders that were to date unwilling to get vaccinated and what the implications of that could be. I want to play that clip as well uh, for those who missed it and then give you a chance to respond.
2: As many as as one in three emergency responders in some cities like Chicago, Los Angeles, right here in Baltimore, are refusing to comply with city vaccine mandates. I'm wondering where you stand on that. Should police officers, emergency responders be mandated to get vaccines? And if not, should they be stay at home or let go?
1: Yes and yes. What do you think of the idea that as many as a third of the first responders in these cities uh, should be fired for not getting the vaccine.
2: Well, this isn't, this isn't the government that I know. Uh, this is, uh, you know, this is socialism. Uh, you know, when you peel it back, it's uh, do as I say, or you're, are uh, you going to be penalized? Uh, bottom line is that, uh, president Biden's not a physician. Uh, The vaccine is, uh, you know, certainly uh, if if you are compromised, uh, you you know, well, here's the bottom line. The federal government has been interfering with our health care since the implementation of Obamacare. They tell you how long to stay in the hospital, how long you can have rehab. Uh, They won't pay for readmittance. The health care system is a mess. And now you put COVID on top of that. These these our first responders, and obviously this war on law enforcement or this defund the police movement, has got a morale and, uh, and and our healthcare workers are stressed out. And now the mandate, and the bottom line is, you should listen to your physician. And if your physician says you need to get the vaccine, then I would recommend that you get the vaccine. But if your physician says there is no reason for you to get vaccinated, then you should be allowed to continue to work. I don't know where the president is coming from this. You know, he, he did say earlier that he was not going to mandate back vaccines. So what he's doing to our country right now, and it's not just first responders and police and uh, you know, the fire department. It is across the land that this is happening. Yeah. And it is going to cripple uh, this this country. And it, it already has. Yeah.
1: Congressman Allen, one of the issues uh, that has not been explained is why the federal government refuses to recognize natural antibodies. Is there a reason for those who have not gotten the vaccine that it would be unacceptable for them to go get a test and prove that they already have antibodies, which is what the goal of the vaccine is anyway?
2: Yeah, you can uh, you can go to a, a grocery store, or drug store, and get an antibody test. It takes fifteen minutes.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And if you got the antibodies, that means you've had COVID. And you know, and, and if you didn't know you had antibodies, you didn't know you had COVID. So obviously, the virus is of uh, you know it it's not a problem for you. It's, it's it, it and so and this thing is is strange in it how it attacks uh, the immune systems and what whatnot. If you've got a compromised immune system, there are problems. But we've got a large percentage of the population that I think that has had COVID that are not vaccinated that, in fact, uh, have the antibodies. And that should be equally uh, as important as having the vaccine. And now I'm not a physician, but I think the, the medical community would tell you that.
1: Congressman, one other question on this subject. with respect to the vaccines and the the federal government's requirement, the Biden, ministra- the Biden administration has been criticized in Afghanistan for their lack of foresight and their inability to anticipate potential problems. Do you think their willingness to essentially say goodbye to a third of the first responders in the country is, uh, is a lack of this foresight uh, in, in thinking through what that might actually mean for our country? Uh,
2: let me tell you, uh, we've got many problems in this country right now, and they're being totally ignored. I, for the life of me, do not understand why he is not on the ground talking with people, finding out what's going on. Apparently, there's this bubble in the White House. They wake him up every morning. They tell him what to say. And they say, you're going to be the most progressive president since FDR. And he seems to be happy about that. Uh, This is no way to run a country. We need leadership in this country. We've got We've got issues that need to be dealt with. And if they're not dealt with, uh, the people are going to suffer.
1: One other issue, Congressman, you have joined a letter this week to the White House uh, with respect to 17 missionaries in Haiti who are currently uh, have been kidnapped and are being held hostage by gangs in Haiti. What have you asked the White House to do and what kind of response have you received?
2: Well, just like Afghanistan, where, you know, what I love about the military is you leave no soldier behind. Uh, This White House doesn't understand that. We left people behind, friends. Uh, You know, when it comes to religious persecution uh, in in foreign nations, particularly of, of Americans, it should not be tolerated. We have heard not one action by this White House to deal with this problem in Haiti. And, you know, we got, what, 17 Americans down there that have been kidnapped. There's been a ransom offered. Uh, And, you know, we don't pay, you know, we don't pay ransoms. Uh, We need to uh, take, uh, use the full force of the federal government to go and free these people and deal with these gangs in Haiti. And that's what essentially we said uh, in uh, uh, Jody Heist, Congressman Heist, and I said in our letter is, hey, we need a little sense of urgency here. Uh, because the longer this thing, uh, well, as you know, these things don't turn out well if, if they're not dealt with and dealt with in a hurry and dealt with force. Uh, and, uh, it, it, and like I said, we've got no response.
1: Have you seen anything from the White House, heard anything from the White House, just in general, any indication of how they're handling this, if they're aware of it, what they plan to do?
2: Uh, I have seen nothing from the White House on uh, any intentions of what they will do to deal with deal with this issue or, frankly, any. This is a very important issue. But I'm talking about all the other things I described. Uh, They're doing nothing. Uh, It's it's beyond belief. Uh, And like I said, people are going to suffer. We need to, you know, we need to deal with this. We need to deal through, you know, we should have our UN ambassador on this. I mean, uh, this, this should be all over the news and we're not hearing anything.
1: Congressman Rick Allen, we agree with you and we do thank you for your vigilance and we hope that the White House will uh, take your suggestions and take this very seriously and bring them home because certainly every American knows if these were our loved ones that's what we would expect, that's what we would demand from our federal government and the hostages in Haiti deserve no less. Really appreciate your time and bringing this to our attention. Thanks Joseph. Now stay with us. On the other side of the break, a second state, Texas, has asked the Supreme Court to overturn Roe versus Wade. We'll talk about what it means when we come back. Stay with us.
3: With tech censorship on the rise, we've increasingly seen the cancellation of conservatives and Christians. At Family Research Council, we want to be proactive about making sure big tech doesn't completely silence us. We want to stay connected with you, and so we've created a tech subscription platform. That way, if we are canceled, you can still find updates on faith, family, and freedom. You can get FRC's content straight to your phone by signing up for our text alerts. Just text STAND to 67742. Again, text STAND to 67742, and FRC will send you special alerts on the issues of the day. By subscribing, you'll also be one of the first to know about our upcoming events and programs. All of this info is yours with just a simple text. We want you to always have access to the content that will help you stand for what's right and keep you connected with like-minded community. Just text STAND to 67742 and be the most informed person you know. Join us for FRC and
0: FRC Action's inaugural Pray, Vote, Stand Summit. In light of the growing opposition our culture has expressed against biblical principles and the truth of God's Word, we've launched Pray, Vote, Stand Summit to equip and encourage Christians to respond to this opposition from a biblical worldview. We will address issues such as protecting the unborn, the importance of the nuclear family, domestic and international religious liberty, developments in our nation's education system, and more. We see the need for the restoration of a biblical foundation in our nation and the necessity to equip Christians to effectively engage the culture and understand current events through a biblical lens. Join us at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia from October 6th through the 8th for the Pray, Vote, Stand Summit. Register online at prayvotestand.org/summit, or by calling 877-372-2808.
4: More than ever before, Christians need to be grounded in the truth of God's Word and be prepared to articulate them in a winsome manner. That is why Family Research Council has launched the Center for Biblical Worldview. By applying the Bible and the historical teachings of the church to a wide range of relevant issues, including voting, religious liberty, abortion, marriage, and sexuality, the experts at the center have provided resources to help Christians live by a biblical worldview. To understand why scripture must be authoritative and to equip believers to advance and defend the faith in the workplace, in schools, in their communities, and in the public square, Access free resources like the Biblical Worldview series at frc.org worldview. To get highlights of the latest work of the Worldview Fellows, including their latest blogs, op-eds, interviews, and publications, sign up at frc.org subscriptions.
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony. Glad that you are with us today. The Supreme Court has declined to interfere with the Texas Heartbeat Law, which bans abortion once a heartbeat can be detected, which is typically around six weeks. In addition, the Supreme Court has agreed to hear oral arguments about the law on November 1st. Now, this is just one month prior to the hearing in the Dobbs case out of Mississippi, which also asks the Supreme Court, or at least gives the Supreme Court, the opportunity to to overturn Roe versus Wade. That means there will be two cases in six weeks dealing with the fundamental question of abortion. What does it all mean? With me now to discuss this is Catherine Beck-Johnson. She's FRC's Research Fellow for Legal and Policy Studies. Catherine, welcome back to the program.
5: Thanks for having me, Joseph. It's great to be here with you.
1: We are glad to have you. Tell me your reaction when you heard that the Supreme Court was going to hear this case.
5: This is just phenomenal news. First and foremost, the fact that the Supreme Court is once again allowing the Texas law to survive another day was just a really promising sign that this law is in effect. Lives are continuing to be saved in Texas. That was really promising. Although the Supreme Court did not agree to hear the question that Texas presented of what Roe versus Wade should be overturned, We know that they will be dealing with that in jobs in just a few weeks. And like I said, really the wonderful news of today is that the court failed to block this law as DOJ had requested them to do immediately. So that's really that's a sign of hope for us.
1: And and let's explain that a little bit more. What specifically was the argument that the Department of Justice was making uh, to to ask the Supreme Court to intervene and essentially eliminate the heartbeat law?
5: Well actually they did they just got an extraordinary measure and asked the Supreme Court to block this law before the Fifth Circuit had even decided the merits of this case. And to a lot of people's surprise, the Supreme Court agreed to hear the case before the Fifth Circuit has ruled on that. And the DOJ is claiming that they as the United States have an interest in seeing what is so called a federal constitutional right, the rights to a woman to obtain an abortion. They want to see through. This was forbidding them from being able to fulfill what they call their federal obligations. Of, For instance, an example they gave was a woman at a prison in Texas, at a federal prison, who wanted to obtain an abortion. So they said arguments like that, this was hindering their ability. And so we'll see what the court says. The court was not immediately impressed by those arguments to issue an injunction today, they always could after oral arguments. But the fact that they did not immediately is a promising sign for us.
1: Do you think that that indicates a shift in the way that the court is thinking about the issue of abortion?
5: I do. I think, you know, before Justice Barrett, especially even before Justice Kavanaugh The court just very much viewed a woman's so-called right to an abortion as the end-all, be-all. It got a special pass in the court system. And so I think for the first time here, we have a court saying, wait, there's other interests, there's other issues to play, and that abortion doesn't get the special pass anymore. So my hope is that that same mentality will carry through Dodds, and the court will say enough with the special pass from abortion. It's time to allow states to permit protecting life, starting at conception.
1: Now, for months, we have been talking about this Dobbs case. Explain to us what the difference is in these cases. Are the arguments going to be fundamentally the same? Are there different legal questions that the court's considering?
5: Yeah, there there really are completely different legal questions. So in Dodd, that is really the meat of the abortion question, whether or not a state can forbid abortion prior to viability, which a state has not been permitted to do that. So that really gets to whether or not abortion can be outlawed in a state. That is what the pro-lifers have been eyeing for ever since May when the Supreme Court said that they would take up the case. That's been our focus. Here, this is more of a procedural question. What the Supreme Court agreed to hear is whether or not the federal government can come in and, and and stop enforcement of this law against even private individuals because the Texas law has a unique mechanism where it's not the State government that's enforcing this law, but wa- rather an individual can sue an abortionist to for ten thousand dollars if they violate this law. So this is really a special, unique mechanism the Texas law has, and it's whether or not the federal government has the ability to stop that mechanism. You could exchange abortion for any other issue and that's what the supreme court's going to be dealing with right now. But that goes to show who's elected president has a huge implication because we would not be at the court dealing with this question if president Trump had been reelected in pertaining to this Texas case.
1: And and as we know of course the the Biden administration is now enthusiastically uh, working on behalf of the abortion industry. Now the Texas heartbeat law arguments is going to be heard on November 1st, but we're not going to know the result of that argument before December 1st, will we?
5: There's a possibility. I mean, they have agreed that this is going to be on a much faster timeline, so we very much could know. We won't read too much into what happens in this case pertaining to what could happen to Dobbs because, like I said, they might just want to decide this on a procedural basis. They did not want to get into the question of whether or not Rose should be overturned in this case. So we wouldn't read too much into it. We still have a lot of hope from for Dobbs.
1: What do you think is going to happen? Do you have a crystal ball for us?
5: I unfortunately do not have a crystal ball, crystal ball, but I do think it's a good sign that they did not issue any sort of relief today and they said we will wait to hear oral arguments on this because if the Supreme Court were incredibly concerned about the, what we're going what Is going on right now, they likely would have issued this injunction immediately. So I think that we ultimately will prevail.
1: And I think that's a really good point. And I think uh, to your point that the encouraging news here is that the Supreme Court no longer sees it as a top priority to defend abortion at all costs. And maybe that's the headline from the news today. Catherine Beck Johnson, really appreciate your time explaining it all to us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And we are going to come back and go to Loudoun County, Virginia, because it is the uh, ground zero for the debate over parental rights, school boards, and parents. Who's in charge? There are some new developments out of Loudoun County about whether the school board was trying to hide a sexual assault from the public. We'll talk about it when we come back.
7: But struggled to get in a groove? It can be hard, especially if you don't know where to start. Or how to understand and apply what you've read. Or maybe it's just that doing it alone has made it too easy to give up. Well, let me encourage you. You don't have to do this daily discipline alone. You can join Family Research Council's Stand on the Word two-year Bible reading plan. God's Word is necessary in our lives. So much so that Christ said we are to live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He calls it our daily bread because we need it daily to sustain us and nourish us spiritually, just like food does physically. That is why we want to read the Bible daily, and we'd love for you to join us so we can stay grounded in God's truth and grow closer to God together. Our hope is that this plan will help you be transformed by God's Word by reading and hearing it daily. Sign up to get the daily passages and questions today by visiting frc.org slash Bible. That's frc.org slash Bible.
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony Perkins. Educating our next generation should start in the home where we as parents can and should teach our kids a biblical worldview in all things. But for many, public and private schools are the next avenue for shaping our kids' worldviews. Unfortunately, Schools are now increasingly teaching not just reading, writing, and arithmetic, but also gender unicorns and critical race theory. And now, concerned parents are being labeled domestic terrorists for voicing concerns about their children's education, which should be their rights as parents. And, curiously, Loudoun County, Virginia has become the battleground for all of it. Joining me now to discuss this is my colleague, Meg Kilgannon who is FRC's Senior Fellow for Education Studies. Meg, welcome back to the program. It's great to be with you, Joseph. Well, first, just tell us, this uh, soap opera that's playing itself out in Loudoun County, Virginia, what are the latest developments?
8: It it really is a, a must-see TV almost every day, the announcements that are coming out from the situation. Um, the most recent revelation is that there's been a FOIA request, and I hope that our listeners are paying attention to that. There's been a FOIA request that's revealed information, so we yes. hope that you all are in your own town. The Freedom and, of Information
1: and- Act request. <laughs> they, they requested yes. the communications through the Freedom of Information Act, yes.
8: And we hope that you're doing that, and in your own communities, because this is the sort of information that you find out. Um, they, they did a Freedom of Information Act request. And it turns out that in spite of their denials about the school board being made aware of the sexual assault that occurred in Loudoun County Public Schools in the bathroom, a male student who identifies as female was using the girl's restroom at a high school and assaulted, sexually assaulted a girl in the girl's bathroom. Now, Meg... and this-
1: yeah. Yes. Some people might be hearing about this story for the very first time. So just to catch them up, Loudoun County, Virginia, has a transgender policy. They created one. An assault took place in a bathroom where a boy was in a skirt and sexually assaulted a girl. She reported that, but they tried to keep the lid on that. Is Do I essentially have the story correct?
8: You do. You do. And they wanted to keep the lid on it because they didn't pass the official policy yet. They had a case-by-case policy where principals could allow students into the bathroom if they wanted to, and this principal had made that decision. So in order to have that policy go countywide— They wanted to not have this story come out, right? Because this, of course, is exactly what parents were warning would happen. Right. And And in fact, happened before they even passed the policy.
1: That's exactly right. And then the worst part of this is that it happened again with the same perpetrator, right?
8: It happened again with the same perpetrator. And in spite of the school board now claiming that they don't know, that they never knew what happened, we do have a record that proves that on the day the sexual assault occurred, the school board was notified that an assault had a sexual assault had occurred at Stonebridge High School on the very day that it happened, May 28th. So when the school board members later in June denied that there had been any instances of sexual assault in the schools, they were lying. And this this it, this this information condemns every sitting member of that school board with the exception of the one who's been recently appointed after that meeting
1: and then the Um, father meg another twist in this that i don't know which is the worst part of this the father of the girl who was originally assaulted who had reported the assault showed up at the school board meeting very upset as one might reasonably expect the father in that situation to be (laughs) how did the school board respond to that father
8: the school board shut the meeting down, and um, he was arrested at the meeting. Uh, it, it's it just defies all belief, honestly, the way that this is played out. I think that many, many parents can identify with this father who was there to just. He he, he said that he hadn't even planned to speak. He was just there to see what was going on. He knew that they were talking about this policy that was going to allow boys access to the girls' restrooms, and he wanted to see and hear what was happening. And somehow, in the melee that ensued, he ended up being the one that was arrested.
1: Now, Meg, there's been so much activity in Loudoun County. Is any of this activity resulting in real change?
8: Well, the um, that remains to be seen. The education board in richmond virginia uh has not commented on this uh i think they're just trying to get through we have a governor's race in virginia that's happening in november and they're just trying to uh you know white knuckle it through to the end of this campaign hoping to uh, to have the democrat be elected so that we can further sweep this under the rug and not do anything about it as they would want um so The Republican candidate for office, though, has laid out a plan uh, for education in Virginia, and he's demanded an full investigation of the situation. And um, I really hope that we'll have a chance in Virginia to have a thorough investigation of this.
1: This dynamic doesn't. Yeah, this dynamic does not exist in every school board around the country. But there is no clearer example of the conflict that exists in many places between school boards and the education establishment and parents and just evidence that parents need to be very very vigilant and meg we appreciate you to spending a few minutes with us today to explain it all to us thank you joseph we are going to continue to follow this because there may be no more important issue and we hope that it certainly encourages you as parents to get involved coming up after the break is it ever wrong for churches to become politically active? That's the conversation we're going to have in our worldview conversation with David Cossack when we come back. Stay with us.
3: Are you a university student? Do you know a university student? Specifically, one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to influence public policy and culture? Look no further. Family Research Council has a life-changing 12- to 15-week internship program that prepares and equips students to take the next step in their professional journey. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview trainings, students will grow in personal and professional development. Interns will have the opportunity to work in policy, communications, event planning, and more. They will gain real-world experience working directly with our experts who will guide them in pursuing careers of influence so that they can make a difference wherever God calls them. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving interns the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org slash internships to apply. Is real biblical masculinity
0: lost forever? In this culture of gender confusion... There are too few examples of godly manhood. So where can men, husbands, and fathers find a model of godly manhood, leadership, and strength in this culture? Try our Stand Courageous Men's Ministry. We seek to help men develop a strong biblical character, cultivate positive habits, build and rebuild relationships, and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. Men Who Will Stand Courageous. We invite you to join us at a Stand Courageous men's conference to discuss critical aspects of masculinity. These conferences are led by men who struggle with the same issues you do and will invest in unpacking our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can have a generational influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand
3: Courageous event near you at StandCourageous.com. With tech censorship on the rise, we've increasingly seen the cancellation of conservatives and Christians. At Family Research Council, we want to be proactive about making sure big tech doesn't completely silence us. We want to stay connected with you, and so we've created a tech subscription platform. That way, if we are canceled, you can still find updates on faith, family, and freedom. You can get FRC's content straight to your phone by signing up for our text alerts. Just text STAND to 67742. Again, text STAND to 67742. And FRC will send you special alerts on the issues of the day. By subscribing, you'll also be one of the first to know about our upcoming events and programs. All of this info is yours with just a simple text. We want you to always have access to the content that will help you stand for what's right and keep you connected with like-minded community. Just text STAND to 67742 and be the most informed person you know.
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. So glad that you have chosen to spend a few minutes with us. Are churches a place where our elected officials should be openly endorsing people for office? How about pastors? Well, Vice President Kamala Harris just opened a can of worms by making a video endorsing Virginia Democrat Terry McAuliffe for governor. Here's what she said. As you know, this is an
8: important election coming up on Tuesday, November 2nd, and early voting is already underway. I believe that my friend Terry McAuliffe is the leader Virginia needs at this moment.
1: This video was designed for churches, but was this a proper use of the church? My colleague David Claussen, FRC's Director of the Center for Biblical Worldview, joins me now, and he wrote this week's Worldview blog on this very subject. David, welcome back to the program. Hey, great to be with you, Joseph. Well, (laughs) there's layers to this, and I I want to peel a lot of these back. Um, Let's start with is it a problem for Kamala Harris to endorse Terry McAuliffe?
9: No, it's not. I don't think it's a problem for the vice president uh, to endorse any political candidate that she wants. This is a common practice for politicians to endorse their friends and you know people in their party. So I don't think it is a, prom- a problem at all for her to endorse Terry McAuliffe.
1: OK. Now, she created this video, and, and that was a three-minute-long video, actually, and we just played a, a few seconds of it but it was sent to 300 churches, I don't know um, how many of them played it, but certainly some of them did. Is it a problem for those churches to play this video in a Sunday morning gathering where Kamala Harris endorses Terry McAuliffe?
9: And that's where we start peeling back the layers of this because yeah, you know, it's okay for her to endorse Terry McAuliffe, I think it's a different calculus on whether it's appropriate for a campaign-style video to be played in churches. Like you said, Joseph, they sent this to about 300 churches that they're expecting to play uh, kind of over the next couple of Sundays in the lead-up to the election. And I think there should be some pause uh, for going into a worship service and a pastor allowing a campaign-style video like this being played. I know we can get into it, but I, I think at the very least, uh, congregations and pastors should be having some conversations on what is the purpose of a, a, a gathered, uh, you know, Sunday morning gathering for, for worship to the Lord. Is this the right context right. for this kind of video to be played?
1: Okay. And, and when we evaluate this, there there's, there's two uh, levels of analysis. Yes. One is legal and one is theological. And this is part of the exercise of being Christians who have dual citizenship we we live in america we live in the world but we also live in the kingdom of heaven so we are bound by the laws of the country and the city and the nation that we live in but we're also bound by the laws of god given to us in scripture and sometimes those are in conflict sometimes they're consistent sometimes one applies and one may not and so here let's start though you're not a lawyer uh, but we 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 need to have this conversation about the legal side of this because for a long time in american history um, this thing called the Johnson Amendment, right, this 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 kind of skeleton boogeyman in the closet that comes out every election cycle and the left tries to scare people with saying don't say anything about politics. What is the Johnson Amendment? How is it relevant to this conversation?
9: Yeah, so 1954, then-Senator uh, Lyndon B. Johnson, who later became president uh, – he actually was pretty upset. He ran for re-election uh, for Senate there in Texas uh, because there were some nonprofits uh, that endorsed his opponent and kind of campaigned against him. So he actually rewrote part of the tax law and it was passed through the Senate without any right. objection basically saying if you're a 501c3, if you're a charity, and this includes churches, uh, you cannot engage in direct political activity. You cannot engage in direct campaign activity. Uh, that, that's what the Johnson Amendment is. And so it has had a chilling effect on the, the free speech of pastors. What's worth noting, uh, Joseph, is that FRC has historically opposed the Johnson Amendment. Uh, In the previous administration, Donald Trump tried to roll back through executive order. We were in support of that. Uh, You and I, uh, we would both be against the Johnson Amendment because of the stifling effect it has on the free speech of pastors. I don't think the government has any role in telling a church what it can or cannot say. The question, though, becomes is this wise? Is this proprietary? And that gets to the second
1: section. But on the issue of the Johnson Amendment, for those who are confused about it, because I think it is true, you referred to the stifling effect that it has, has, has had on pastors. And there are still, in America, tens of thousands, I'm sure, pastors who believe there is a real legal risk associated with certainly endorsing candidates. And some people think that even talking about a political issue that seems to impugn one political party or another. And so there are a lot of pastors who stay away from any kind of discussion about cultural issues because they have this very sincere, though I think based in ignorance, fear that there's something legal that could happen to them um, if they have these conversations. And what I think if you, listener, are in that category um, of, of, of... pastor or just person, that essentially that issue has been lost legally. The Supreme Court hasn't ever intervened, but the IRS has said in writing that we are not going to enforce this. The Trump administration had, uh, by executive order, kind of repealed it, and so certainly they were doing nothing. But there are no churches losing their tax exempt status, and there's something that the, our friends at the Alliance Defending Freedom have run for more than a decade, this something called Pulpit Freedom Sunday, in which they encouraged and gathered a whole bunch of pastors to do the very thing that the IRS allegedly was telling them they could not do because they wanted to get into court and prove that it was legal for pastors to say whatever they want from their pulpit. And the IRS, even though they had literally thousands of sermons yes. mailed to them where, pe- where these pastors were violating the law, the IRS refused to enforce it. So uh, pastors, there are many who are trying to get in trouble with the IRS who can't. So if you're not trying to get in trouble with the IRS, the likelihood of you getting in trouble with the IRS is quite small.
9: And let me just add, Joseph, no church has ever lost their tax-exempt status. Uh, in 1992, uh, one church actually ran full-length national advertisements against yeah. Bill Clinton. Uh, the IRS contacted them, basically said, you probably shouldn't do this, we'll take your exempt letter yes. away. But even they didn't lose their status. And so while the Johnson Amendment is on the books, there is really no practical effect.
1: Right. So that's the legal side yes. of this. That's that the pastors... Church leaders should not be afraid of the IRS when it comes to this analysis. Yes. But there's this whole other question. Okay, the First Amendment should allow us the freedom to say what we want, but not everything that we are legally free to say does the Scripture say you should say, of course. And there's many examples of this. So when when a pastor is having this... This deliberation and and certainly many pastors have, have parishioners who will come to them and say, hey, this is an important issue or this is a good guy or this is a bad guy. I need your help. What should they be thinking about?
9: Yeah, I think we need to go back to the question of, you know, what is the purpose and nature of a church? So if I was an elder, if I was a pastor of a local congregation, the conversation I would be wanting to have with my fellow pastors and with my church is just reminding them, you know, the, the purpose of the church. And I think, you know, Joseph, I don't think we think very often deeply about what the church is. Well, you know, why does the church exist? Well, what is the church? It's the gathered gathering of, of those who have been uh, saved by faith in Christ that they've gathered together. The church exists to worship God. Uh, The church exists for the preaching and teaching of the Word, uh, building up and edifying the saints. It exists for evangelism and discipleship. Uh, The church exists for mercy ministry. Uh, So those are the the primary purposes of why we gather on a Sunday morning on the Lord's Day, to remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ and to, to share the gospel. However, uh, the Bible also tells us that we need to love our neighbors, and so that's why in elections past, I've been very vocal uh, that one of the ways we show love for our neighbors is by engaging in politics. And so I, if I was a pastor of a local church, I would have no problem hosting voter registration drives in my church, making sure people are registered uh, so they can go vote, because I think there's an obligation to vote. I also have no problem giving out voter guides uh, that just lay out the issues. Where does candidate X and candidate Y stand on abortion, religious freedom, Marriage, education policy. So I think it's important that we remember what the purpose and nature of the church is, and from there, how do we honor the Lord? How do we love our neighbors? And so I think we do need to engage, but we just need to be thinking deeply about how this fits in with the mission of the church.
1: And so the the question here, because obviously Vice President Harris was very explicit, you should go vote for Terry McAuliffe. And politically, that's not something I would agree with, but. Um, the question here is whether that's an appropriate message in the church. Um, but what if somebody had said, you know, it's Glenn Youngkin who's her, her opponent. Would the evaluation be any different if this was a candidate that you might prefer in Kamala Harris or let's say in a world where it's Vice President Mike Pence go vote for, for Glenn Youngkin? Is that analysis different? I
9: think in one sense it's a similar analysis asking what is wise, what is proper? Is it appropriate to actually from a pulpit endorse a candidate? And I think every pastor needs to make that decision, every elders. Again, I don't think the government should be able to tell them what they can or cannot say or what they can and cannot do from their church. So I think it's, a, it's an issue of wisdom. But what I do think uh, that churches should, would absolutely do is look at the issues. So just even in this election, Terry McAuliffe versus Glenn Youngkin, they have very different positions on abortion, religious freedom, issues of the family, issues, Joseph, that the Scripture speaks really clearly about. And so I would have no problem walking through the issues with people in my congregation um, if I was a pastor in Virginia right now.
1: I would say most pastors in my experience— would be unwilling to cross the line yes. of endorsements. I, I, I know some pastors who will, and we're, and we're going to talk about them in a moment, but I would say most pastors that I know would, even those who speak to issues, which is, which is, I think, appropriate and just part of discipleship, would say, I am unwilling to endorse a candidate from the pulpit in a church. Why do they feel that way?
9: I think they would feel that way just because kind of what I said, what the nature and purpose of the church is. Because, you know, my goodness, you know, in the New Testament, how often does Paul talk about the importance of the unity of the local church? And, you know, yeah. the, the politics can be divisive. And so I think that impulse of not wanting to cause unnecessary division would, you know, that's where a lot of pastors say that's a line. I'm fine with talking to the issues, but there's a line I don't want to step by kind of standing behind that pulpit and saying, Uh, With the authority of me being a religious leader, I don't want to pick one candidate over the other. I think that's where
1: that impulse comes from. The desire to to maintain unity within the church is one that's very real. And I think the argument you made made is, is a commonly held one. I'll ask a question this way, and I don't even know if I know what the answer is. Can a vote be sinful? That's a good question, Joseph.
9: I feel like we have a whole segment on that. I think in some cases probably it could be sinful uh, if the, the candidate that you are supporting is just the, – the, the positions and the, the things that they are advocating for are just abjectly
1: evil and abjectly wicked. Okay. And, and let's, let's be very – <clears throat> let's put a finer point on this question so it's not abstract, and we've talked about this at other times. If there was a candidate – in, in the world that we're living in, who was running and somehow became a viable candidate on the platform of reinstituting chattel slavery. Would that be a sinful vote to vote for that person? Let's say they were pro-life, but they were like, you know, pro-chattel <laughs> slavery as well, and we won't get into the confusion of that worldview. But let's say that person existed. Would it be sinful to vote for them? And therefore, would it be an obligation of pastors to prevent their congregation from committing the sin of voting for the chattel slavery candidate.
9: That surely is a morally confused world to be pro-life and pro-chattel slavery. And I think something that would be that, because what is that, Joseph, the the situation? That, that, That would be morally heinous. That would be wicked. It would be confused. And so I think I could conceive of a world, even with the things I just laid out, where I could see, you know, a pastor saying, hey, this is the issue. And my conscience is leading me to vote against this person. And I, th- I, th- I wouldn't have an issue with that because th- I think there are some issues that cross a threshold of being so morally repugnant uh, that we do need to
1: take a stand. Well, and we are looking forward. But then this causes me to look back to 2020 where we had this very question because I am one who actually believes that the scourge of abortion yeah. is probably worse than the scourge of chattel slavery, which was very, very bad um so is that a is that a line? i think we've asked ourselves we've forced ourselves to consider a question again about whether it's actually wrong if your're if your vote is going to support something that is morally unambiguously evil is that vote sinful and
9: My convictions are similar to yours, and, you know, I I view the pro-life issue not as a political issue but as a first and foremost theological and moral issue, which is why my convictions would never allow me to vote for someone who was pro-choice. I do know, and I talk to pastors around the country who have other concerns that they also view as first-tier moral issues, and, you know, I want to extend grace to people who would have – their conscience would come down on these issues a little bit differently – But as far as the kind of the theoretical you just laid out for me, that was the calculus that I went through, Joseph, in 2020 and 2016. I could not bring myself to vote for someone who was pro-choice, and not just pro-choice. You have candidates now who are saying that the federal government should be funding abortion up till the moment of birth, and maybe even after birth. And so I think that pastors need to be clear on where all these issues and where the parties do stand.
1: And I think we've gotten to some of the arguments for why there are pastors who feel compelled yes. to endorse candidates because they feel that the issues involved are morally so serious yeah. that it's a part of discipleship yeah. in, to educate people to disciple them in how to steward citizenship but we also know that there are that there are pastors who are essentially, it, it, you know, it's divisive. Yeah. We want to maintain unity. We think this is a matter of conscience, and it, it falls outside the bounds of what traditional discipleship feels like. Is there, a re- is there a solution to this in about 30 seconds? I don't
9: know if there's a resolution. I think the unity of the church is something the New yeah. Testament puts a lot of emphasis on, but we're also called yeah. to love our neighbors. And I don't think, Joseph, we can love our neighbors well unless we're engaging in this world yeah. of politics.
1: So I think every Christian needs to engage on these issues. Yeah. David Clausen, really appreciate your time and being with us today. Thank you, Joseph. And that is going to be it for the program today. It really is. I hope this has helped you think through it. It's helped me think through it in some ways uh, because these are not simple questions, but the issues are important. And ultimately we have to approach all of this with a great deal of humility, making sure that we're not just trying to get our way, but we're trying to do God's will in all things. Hope this has been a blessing to you. We look forward to seeing you next time on Washington Watch.